A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. Come into the reading room, all you lovers of language and literature. This is the place for those of us who believe that reading is essential as we seek to rise above the ordinary. And the reading room contains a host of extraordinary people, leading lights of the written word. Authors, literary critics, columnists and ideas people will tantalize your minds with their wordplay while discussing the ideas and worldviews that form our wonderful literary milieu. Come step into a world of magic, the place of undiscovered treasures, a room of reading. And a very good day to all of you. And yes, this is the place where you can find out about words, about your favorite authors, about people who have some kind of knowledge when it comes to how to stir up emotions, maybe sometimes annoy people. Today is one of the people that seems to be one of the writers that people have loved to hate over the years. And somebody whose writing I have absolutely appreciated and loved for so many years as well. So joining us from somewhere in the Western Cape, we have the one only Sir David Bullard. How are you doing today? Well, I'm extremely well. It's been pouring with rain here. Our dams are 82% full and it's still got an extra four or five days of rain. Actually, I'm, I'm fed up with it. I could do with a sunny day. I need to wash something, you know. It's, but one mustn't complain about these things. And, of course, um, I've only delayed um, buying cigarettes and booze to speak to you. I'm hoping they haven't sold out in another half hour. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm doing exactly the same thing, but I think you know, there's too many people queuing up for things at the moment. This way we can maybe miss the queue. So now, where exactly are you? Well, I'm in, uh, I'm in Somerset West. I'm actually on a residential wine farm. Uh, having said that, you know, it's a residential wine farm that uh, last year won the prize for the best Cabernet Sauvignon 2017, ahead of some of our very esteemed uh, local competitors, uh, Thelema, Rustin, Frieda, Delair Graf and others. So we, we make very good wines. Uh, we don't make much of it, but we make very good wines. And of course, this is a great comfort that uh, during a time of, uh, of booze bans, you know that the largest part of last year's stock is just 500 meters down the road. The only problem, we couldn't get access to it. But, you know, it's comforting to know it's there. Okay, so you have become a complete wine buff. I always took you for a bit of a whiskey man. No, I'm a whiskey man as well. Now, I'm a whiskey man. I've, I've always been a wine buff. I used to be chairman of the South African Society of Wine Tasters, which basically happened because uh, I was very good at organizing things. Not that I was very good at knowing what was in the glass, but of course that comes with practice. And the more you drink, the better you get. I'm not going to ask you exactly when you started um, writing, because I mean, we, one does not want to give one's age away too much. But where did it all start for you, your trip down this wonderful road that you've been on in your life? I'm not a journalist, and I never studied journalism. I, I read English and drama at university, and I spent 25 years or so in financial markets, and I started writing a column for the Sunday Times in um, 1994 by invitation. So I sort of slipped in through the back door, which I think uh, irritates a hell of a lot of real journalists who went off and studied at Rhodes and whatever else. And I just swanned into the Sunday Times and got a byline, which of course is unforgivable. And you're never going to love anyone who does that. And the column I thought might last maybe two, three years maximum. 
In fact, I thought initially thought three months, but two or three years maximum. And it ran for 14 years until I got spectacularly sacked in whatever it was, 2008. And I was writing about cars for seven years. So I, uh, I wrote about travel, about cars, about financial markets, all sorts of things. And in fact, I left, I was running my own business. I left my own business in 1997 to become a sort of full-time in inverted commas, columnist, writer, etc. So it was a midlife career change at the age of 45. So I have no claims as many of your other people um, do to, to be a journalist. Um, I'm, I just swanned in and thought, well, you know, this doesn't look too difficult. And it proved not to be too difficult, which will, of course, piss off anyone who studied for three or four years to do it. But the, the whole thing, the word journalist itself, basically means somebody who writes a journal. So why do you have to study something if you can write about other subjects? I mean, it's not like you were going out and writing about hard news or anything like that, which maybe you would have to. But I mean, why would you need to study journalism to write about something you know about? No, look, I think, I think we have to differentiate, and I did, between journalism and columnist. Uh, and people say, oh, you're a journalist. I said, no, a journalist checks the facts, does all the hard work, and, and there are some superb people out there at the moment. I mean, I really have huge respect, for, particularly for the investigative journalists. All a columnist does is basically look over what the hardworking journalist has done and make a comment. So, in fact, all we do is we're, we're the ball at the dinner party. We come in every week with um, 500, 600, 900 words of what we think should happen. And if you like it, you like it. And if you don't, you don't. And we come back next week for the same thing. You never ask for our opinions. We just gave them to you and we got paid for it. Whereas a journalist, I think, has actually got to do a little bit of foot slog and footwork. We, I mean, I literally would sit down for 40 minutes um, to, to an hour, to an hour and a half, knock off a column and bugger off for lunch. So I spent a minimal amount of time in the office. And uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful, you know, it's a wonderful thing to do because, frankly, um, it's dead easy. If you've got a reasonable command of the language, you can do it. I mean, this is, you know, you talk about training as a journalist. I, I have written columns or articles for Media Magazine where I, I really do think that a three-year journalism course is a huge con and an utter waste of daddy's money. Because quite honestly, you can either write or you can't write. But then you could say the same thing about drama as well. Why study drama? You either can be an actor or you can't. I agree. I agree. Totally. Yes. I mean, uh, I... But you uh, studied drama. I did study drama. I accepted. In fact, my major claim to fame, Dame Helen Mirren and I have both acted together in Macbeth. <laughs> and as Michael Caine would say, not a lot of people know that. I was second apparition. She was Lady Macbeth. It's something that I mention as often as possible, and I don't think, as I recall, that she's ever mentioned once in an interview that she was once on stage with the legendary David Bullard playing the second apparition. But this was in 1967, <laughs> National Youth Theatre production at the Shaw Theatre in London. And she was gorgeous. Well, we will then. have to remind her. We'll have to. She still is gorgeous. Come on. Let's she's still about gorgeous. That. She's still gorgeous. Just say, yes, Helen, do you remember David Bullard's second apparition? Uh, his stammering version of <laughs> Macbeth, 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 beware, Macduff. I think she probably doesn't actually. <laughs> okay, well, let's get back to uh, you writing as a columnist. What caused all the trouble? Well, I mean, there was no trouble to start with. Um, what happened was I was writing a column on the Reuters screen when I was in financial markets, and then the Sunday Times invited me to join them. And we we had lots of trouble along the way. We Every week we had uh, hate mail, um, I'm happy to say, uh, which is always a sign that you're hitting the right spot. Uh, we had uh, political uh, objections from the ANC. And I think in the final, the final run-up to 2008, when it was decided that 
after they'd published the article that it was racist. I mean, uh, let's be honest, you know, the article went in on April the 6th, I think it was, yes, April the 6th, no, April the 1st, April no, it was published on April the 6th in 2008, it went in five days earlier. It had plenty of time to be looked at. It was published, and they only decided after they'd worked up enough righteous indignation that um, that I should be fired for it four or five days later, which you would tend to think you would you do straight away. I think what happened there was was uh, to me very simple. Um, a few weeks earlier, uh, Esop Pahad had threatened to withdraw all ANC advertising from the Sunday Times on the basis that the paper's stance was particularly anti-ANC at that time. And they needed a scapegoat, and I was very happy to step up to the role. The feeling was that I would disappear, be forgotten, and never to be seen again. Twelve years later, that hasn't happened because the Out to Lunch column runs every week on Politics Web. So, you know, it wasn't hugely successful. And as someone suggested to me, maybe my brand value has actually uh, outlasted the Sunday Times. I think it's a great pity when you sack anyone for writing something which you've published, your credibility as a publisher goes way down the drain. But, you know, mm. Celevi, they, they, they had the right to do whatever they wanted to do. And, you know, it, it was it was uh, understandable. But there was also this spectacular court cases and all that kind well, of thing. I mean, no, the court cases didn't count to anything because, you know, they delay. So we, we did actually uh, take the Sunday or VUSA, as it then was, many, many years ago to court for wrongful dismissal and they then forged a few documents and did a few dodgy deals and that is still with the court of appeal and in fact the judge i believe that was looking at it was, was a chap called zondo who's a bit busy with something else i've almost given up on it now fortunately it hasn't cost me any money because my extraordinarily good attorney became a very good friend and you've met him he's pretty dodgy when it comes to questions on the beatles music but um he acted pro bono <laughs> Um, and uh, it, it drags on, and, and we just roll our eyes. Uh, my only consolation is it has cost my former employer about one and a half million in legal fees, and it's cost me nothing, which is great. <laughs> All right, so you, you're still doing Out to Lunch. Who have you been going out to lunch with recently? Well, I haven't been to lunch with anyone for about four or five, but I did actually go to lunch, oddly enough, uh, with a well-known wine farmer last week and a well-known politician in a restaurant called Dias in Cape Town near the Fugard Theatre. Other than that, I haven't been out very much. I am looking forward to going out to lunch now because going out to lunch um, without wine is actually pretty pointless. So You're quite right about that. Yeah, so it's, it's a bit of a deadly sort of thing. I did do it once. I went out with, um, with a very good friend of mine in Stellenbosch and it was a dire experience because the restaurant knew they weren't going to get very many tips and there were only about four of us there and they'd rather begrudged opening. So it's quite nice to be back to a sort of normality now. Yeah, I did go to lunch uh, with a very good friend, a mutual friend of ours called Dan, uh, last Saturday at the Stellenbosch Flying Club, which was very pleasant. And um, it'll be nice to sort of get back into the swing of normality now. Down in, in the wine producing areas, they haven't actually been serving you coffee as they'd like to call it at certain establishments around the country. I obviously wouldn't want to reveal any names, but we did find that the... Um, coffee um, was quite cold and had quite a hoppy taste in the cup. <laughs> and we did find that the tea had a distinct Cabernet Sauvignon uh, hint to it, but I, I suspect that was just the varietal of tea. Uh, well, that's a very good People tea. have been getting around it, and um, I think it's been quite rightly a big fat middle finger to a really stupid law, quite honestly. And uh, if you get caught, well, you know, ignore it. Don't pay the admission of guilt fine.
don't pay the fine. That's absolutely right. Have you been writing about stuff um, to do with the lockdown? Oh, my goodness gracious me. Yes, absolutely. I I have been slightly um, cynical about it. I, I did feel, for example, that um, President Frogboiler, as I now have christened the, uh, uh, of the, the president, President Frogboiler's uh, appointment of a six-person committee or command council investigative committee to investigate their own malfeasances was, was a little bit absurd. I mean, every week brings a, a wonderful new story of ineptitude, doesn't it? And I think one only has to look these days at Belarus to say, if you're a really unpopular government, the people may finally decide that they don't like you very much. And I think what I have found out at the moment is that the uh, feeling of uh, disgust with the ANC is not restricted to a very small, in inverted commas, right-wing, uh, white supremacist minority. It is pretty wide across the board. People are utterly fed up with what they've been told to do, how they've been told to behave, and what they're expected to uh, accept. And I think the fact that the ANC treats the entire nation with utter contempt while busy uh, stealing from us. I mean, Ace Magashula's admission that we're all in this together, guys. Tell you, name me another ANC politician that isn't stealing from you. I mean, I rolled my eyes and thought, well, how can you possibly say? Well, I mean, I know how you can possibly say it because you don't give a shit, frankly. That's how you can possibly say it. <laughs> and when one of your sons buys a two million BMW, I think people are getting to a sort of a state of fed upness. Which is quite encouraging because this was something I was writing about in 2006 and forward. And, and back in those days, uh, many of my contemporaries were saying that uh, I was racist and right-wing or whatever else. Oddly enough, if I now read the Daily Maverick and the Mail and Guardian and News24, many of those seem to be coming around to my point of view albeit belatedly, but it does take some people a bit of time to catch up with reality. Well, yeah, it has been a, a very scary time for, to be living in, actually. I mean, people say, oh, it's, it's inconvenient, and um, there's these inconvenient truths that we're having to deal with. But for me, it is the erosion of, and people are saying, why are you lauding and so happy that alcohol and cigarettes are back? I'm like, because they took away our basic human rights without any reason to do so whatsoever. And that's what it all boils down to, and the people just don't get that. Well, I'm not a cigarette smoker. I might become one now, just for the hell of it. But I'm, yeah, I'm not a cigarette smoker. Uh, but I do think you're absolutely right there. You take away certain basic human rights, which didn't happen in other parts of the world. Now, look, we might get a second wave. We might get all sorts of things. But it depends whether you feel you're living in a free society or not. There was no scientific reason to take away either alcohol or cigarettes. The argument that the ICUs would be overcrowded by a whole load of drunks or victims of drunks turned out to be completely nonsensical. And in fact, many of the emergency uh, field centres which were set up were never used, as, as indeed happened in the UK. I'm very mm. glad they were set up, but they've been closed down. So there was this incredible panic. And I've seen this, I think we've seen this around the world, that this is irrational behaviour from politicians. I mean, it is complete and utter panic. And you have to have a certain sympathy with governments to say, right, we need to do something about this. But, you know, I'm 68 this year. Uh, hard to believe, I know, because of the remarkably dark hair and whatever. But, um, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm 68. I've been, I've, I've eaten street food in Taiwan. I've drunk snake bar. I've traveled on many aircraft. I've been all over the place. And I have very rarely, if ever, arrived home with anything more than a, than a cough because of people on the plane. Suddenly... I'm under incredible threat from this dreadful, the worst thing since the bubonic plague, apparently. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, if I go out without a mask and if I shop and someone coughs on me, I'm going to be dead within a month. Bullshit. 
Bullshit. I'm, I'm sorry. It is the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. But then we can lay that not just at the feet of the government, but at the feet of the media, who are the ones who have actually been promulgating this complete panic amongst people, especially when it came to toilet paper buying. I agree. Uh, we've still got 14 packs of 18 there. You know. Now, I agree, because it makes a very good story, and you do the next scare, you say, and when the COVID scare goes, hey, yeah, but do you know how many people haven't been scanned for cancer? Oh, new scare. I mean, maybe I've got cancer, but I didn't get scanned for it. And oh, I'm going to die of something else. I mean, frankly, at my age, I couldn't give a damn. I'm going to die of something. So if it happens to be <laughs> coronavirus or whatever, but I'm trying to avoid getting it as I try to avoid getting most stuff. But it has been uh, fanned out of all proportion, hasn't it? I mean, and this is around yeah. the world. This is not just South Africa. This is not just our mainstream media. It's the same nonsense everywhere. And I think sensible people have just said, no, forget it. I do think wearing a mask in public makes sense in the sense it's a sort of a respect to other people, particularly if it's quite a stylish mask. But uh, it's, I mean, it makes sense to me if I cough and something is caught on a piece of cloth, then that's fine. But I don't actually believe that I'm hugely at risk when I go shopping. And I don't really believe I need to sanitize every piece of shopping I brought home with me either. And I have, very, I have to say, I have very rarely washed my hands. <gasps> you dirty boy. I'm afraid in, the, in, the, in this whole thing. I very rarely done all the other things we're supposed to do and I'm still alive. So, you know, maybe my resistance is high. You know about cars, uh, you know about wine, you know about politics, you know about finance. What do you like writing about the most? Uh, politicians. <laughs> no, no, listen, uh, politics is great to write about. Um, I think you need to have a, a, a bit of a sort of a curveball, a bit of a funny angle to it. Uh, you know, to sort of get the reader's attention. And that's really, because you could be, it can be terribly dreary just writing about uh, what a mess they've made of everything. So I think you have to have a bit of an angle on the thing. But um, I would say uh, politics is fun in a light vein. Uh, and then cars was great fun, writing about mm. cars. But once again, in a light vein, I think you can get terribly serious about all of these dreary things and you know, just liven it up a little bit and, and keep the reader amused. I don't take myself mm. seriously, as you well know. A lot of other people take me much more seriously than I take myself, and they think I take myself seriously, which is why they're taking me seriously. But in fact, um, life's too short, quite honestly, to take anything seriously, particularly in this country. You're really known for causing all kinds of trouble on yes. Twitter, though. Yes, I you quite... love it. Why do you love Twitter so much? I love being sacked. I, I love being banned. I was banned for a day, then I was banned for a week due to a complaint from a, a woke white liberal from Claremont who uh, got me banned for a week. And of course, you come back and suddenly you find you've got an extra 500 followers. It's wonderful because they think, hey, this guy's dangerous. You know, it's like when I got sacked from the Sunday Times. I said, to, to, you know, there are several advantages to be, being labeled a racist. Firstly, you can't yeah. be labeled a racist ever again. And it mean, it's meaningless anyway. It's like the UK. Calling somebody a racist is just so meaningless because it's been so overworked that nobody actually takes it that seriously unless they're a real left-wing woke loony. In which case, good luck for them. But I mean, it's, I don't find it at all offensive. It's done me an enormous amount of good. So you, firstly, you can't be called a racist ever again. Secondly, you save an enormous amount on tax because no one will employ you. And thirdly, you're a fantastic <laughs> guest at dinner parties because everyone says, hey, we've got Dave Bullard coming to dinner. Oh, shit. Is he the guy who stirs all the shit? Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. We'll be there. So it's wonderful. <laughs>
Have you been called a colonialist? Oh, well, obviously, I'm a colonialist. I mean, listen to the accent, for heaven's sake. You know, we came here, we taught them everything, didn't we? I mean, we taught them how to make fire and the wheel and all these good things. No, colonialist, white supremacist, uh, misogynist, rape apologist. I never understood what that meant, but I'm a rape apologist as well. About sexist, uh, homophobe. I've been called a rape apologist. Uh, even I've been called one. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? That's a little bit of an honor, isn't it? I mean, how did you manage to do oh, that? No, yeah. I have no idea. That's why I committed Twitter side. I just decided I couldn't deal with. But I think you have to put it all there. down there. You're transphobe, homophobe, the whole thing like that. You know, <laughs> I actually, you know, I also, I, I'm afraid I'm with J.K. Rowling on this. And I think gender studies should be a very simple one-day study. You look down the front of your trousers. If something's dangling there, you're a bloke, and if it's not dangling there, you're a woman. End of course. Thank you very much. Did you pass the exam? <laughs> <laughs> that should get us into oh, trouble, shouldn't it? I do love it. I think so. I yeah. think it's fantastic. I mean, I, I get into trouble for not being a feminist because I'm a humanist. I just, I've always believed that we're all equal. So it's never been an issue for me. But I mean, for, for me, getting to know you was actually through music. And I mean, you do have the rock club. Yes. Is that still happening where you are? Are there people down there that know? Well, it, it isn't sadly. It was great. I mean, and then you introduced me to some other new stuff as well, which was a little bit sort of fringy, but great. But I think we all sort of agreed uh, on uh, what was good stuff, what was good stuff to listen mm. to, you know. I mean, on the mainstream, things like Yes. I know Dan's very into Yes. And uh, it was, a, it, I mean, I think mixing rock music uh, with uh, lots of whiskey, which, as I recall, we did, is possibly the ideal mix. I would agree with that entirely. I, I've got very wide taste. I mean, I'm actually uh, on, on Classic FM this week uh, with Richard Koch talking about my classical music selection. Uh, but, I mean, I can listen to Wagner, and I love listening to Wagner, and I love seeing operas, and I can listen to uh, Led Zepp and uh, Jefferson Airplane and, and Yes and all the all the other things that we used to sort of like deep purple, bang our heads to, with just as much pleasure, which is great. My only problem is that during lockdown, my wife doesn't go out shopping nearly as often. So when she used to go out shopping for three or four hours, I could put the music on very loudly. And she very rarely goes out now. So I have to walk around with a pair of headphones on, which isn't quite the same. Because I think what you want to see is the cracks appearing above the door as the bass speaker just smashes into the wall, you know. Listen, I have two 17-year-olds who like the music that I listen to, but they always keep on coming and going, Mom, please turn it down. Uh, what, what has happened to the new what? generation? What? It's, yeah, God, have they got I mean, sensitive ears or something? Pathetic. <laughs> what do you think about the appropriation of our music by millennials these days? I mean, somebody's just redone Fleetwood Mac songs from Rumours. And I heard it on my way in here this morning. And I'm sitting and thinking, yeah, it's quite pretty. But why don't you go and make your own music? Why are you stealing our music? You're the people who are always talking about cultural appropriation. And here you are taking our culture. Yeah, you know, actually, I don't agree with that because I think it's a huge sign of respect. And it's a sign that they can't come up with anything more original. So I think we should sort of say, listen, by all means, appropriate it. Don't mess it up mm. and show that you actually respect where this is coming from. Because uh, I can see what you're saying, but I think that uh, we should actually say, well, great. I've got young nephews in the early 20s, both of whom learned to play the guitar, actually play the guitar very well. And they were growing up on our music. I mean, they sort of got fed up with their own music and they were listening to sort of Jimmy Page and uh, Hendrix and people like that, which is great. I think that's that's a huge honor because they just know what's good. You know, that's all it is. It's, it's a homage, if you like, to the really great music.
We did grow up in the era of really great music. We did indeed. And then, of course, but you get some people who do come out and do originals. And we take the teenagers from Greta from Fleet who have like not appropriated Led Zeppelin's sound. They've created their own sound. And even Robert Plant has turned around and said, these guys are fantastic. Yes. Yes, that's great. That's fantastic. Have you, li- and, have you listened to them? What greater honor could you have as well than Robert Plant saying that? Did you see Heart, that video of them doing Stairway yeah. to Heaven? Yes. I mean, did you see the guys from Led Zeppelin have got tears running down their eyes? I mean, that was a fabulous performance. Really was superb. It's just lovely to see. It's just lovely to see. And you know, the thing is, the fact that music is still great 40, 50 years later is is testimony to the fact that it was actually the most superb music at the time yeah and and what do you think about the woke generation at the moment pathetic pathetically hopeless <laughs> i mean it's just no it's pathetic i mean this whole woke thing this it, it's a basically demonstration of my morals are much better than yours you know i stand up for this i stand up for that. we've all stood up for things in our lives sometimes we believe in them sometimes we don't sometimes we just need but this whole virtue signaling bullshit that you need to do and i think it, you know it's, it's now got to the stage where it's the fear of being sacked you know if you mm. think about it freedom of speech is almost like ocean yacht racing or owning a racehorse it's actually the preserve of the very rich and privileged because if you've got a job and you fear being sacked you can't afford freedom of speech and if you hold a high position mm-hmm. at university you can't afford freedom of speech it's only when you've got enough fu money to say i don't give a shit what you think this is what i'm gonna say that you can do that that is very sad and it's very dangerous as well because i think whether it's Salman Rushdie or King Lamis or whoever it is, you actually have got to risk being offended. I don't give a damn whether you're offended by what I say. I really don't give a damn. I mean, it's entirely mm. up to you. I mean, if I'm going out to be deliberately offensive, well, that's a slightly different matter. But if I say something and you take offense, well, you know, you're free to take offense. I'm free to give offense. What the hell? Let's go our separate ways. But now we have this dreadful thing where you drag people down and, and they say something Oh, I love it. What's this word? Problematic. Dave's came up with a problematic view. Who gives a shit whether Dave's come <laughs> up with a problematic view? In fact, I try to come up with problematic views as often as possible just to piss people off because I think if you can ruin someone's day with a problematic view, you've probably actually done quite well. I just think they're a bunch of narcissists who hate anybody actually disagreeing with them. I mean, they've forgotten how to have dialogue to have some kind of a dissenting opinion. It must be quite an empty life, mustn't it, really, if you think about it. I mean, I can't think of too many things that offend me apart from the ANC. Um, I can't think other than that. Now, the ANC don't offend me per se. Corruption offends me. The fact that my taxes Mm. don't go to where they should go offends me. The fact that the country that we bought into in 1994 looked hugely promising, oh, now we're a bigger state, offends me. Uh, But I'm still here. And people say, oh, well, why you can go overseas, can't you? I said, yes, of course I can go overseas. I can't afford to go overseas, though. And I don't want to go overseas. I want to be here. I to. like being here. I like This is where my support group is. And I actually would like things to improve. I'd like things to be better. And that's, that's all it is. But other than that, very little offends me. And I mean, whatever people say about me, and they do, can you believe? Um, it honestly <laughs> doesn't, get through, doesn't get through my thick, stupid skin. You know, all the sort of insults that came out, well, after firstly the Sunday Times sacking, and then more lately the Institute of Race Relations sacking. You know, they, mm. they, they drag, up, drag up all sorts of things. You think, well, who cares? Actually, it doesn't matter. People who know me know me. People who don't know me are entitled to have their own warped, strange view. But I'm actually very happy with the quality of my enemies, and I'm even happier with the quality of my friends. Well, this is the whole thing. And talking about friends and uh, people you're going to have lunch with in the future, now that we have wine back again, yes. who's on your menu? 
I would very much like to uh, have lunch with the well-known advocate leopard, um, Erin Diane Richards, who I think on Twitter is saying some very sensible things, and she's very brave, and, and she's obviously very, very smart. I had lunch recently uh, with um, Jeremy Nell, Germ the cartoonist, uh, and always quite enjoy having lunch with people like that. And then otherwise, it's going to be sort of old friends and neighbors who I haven't seen for a long, long while. Generally, people involved in the wine industry, they're always quite good because they bring a couple of bottles along. So they're quite worthwhile inviting <laughs> to lunch. Well, that's a fine idea. And I hope when you come up to Johannesburg, you bring some of that wonderful wine with you. Oh, we're allowed to enjoy I really can't wait to see. I'm not so sure I'm going to be we're able to afford to. to travel. I know. I'm not so sure I'm going to be able to really? afford to. Have you seen the airfares to the UK? <laughs> no, we'll send a car down for you. Oh, sir. good, good. That's perfect. And we'll drive you back up again. And hopefully one day in the not-too-distant future, we might even see a Lunch Out podcast column coming forward, which would, I think, be absolutely fantastic when you sit down and record everything that you're talking about with your people that you're having out for lunch. Yes, it was mooted at one stage. I'm quite lazy, I have to be honest. You know, knocking out a column once a week as opposed to twice a week is, is a bit easier. But um, all the techno stuff and whatever else, so I tend to appear on other people so that they can do all the hard work and I can just turn up. You know, it's a lot easier that way. But look, we're doing it here. We're doing it right now. It's quite easy. I mean, I don't see why. They've got no excuse now, sir. No. Absolutely no, no excuse absolutely. whatsoever. Now we know how it works. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's been absolutely wonderful seeing your your gorgeous face again. Thank you, and, um, very kind of you. I do hope Mrs. Bullard's been putting up with you well during this uh, trying She's, time. That she has had. a high tolerance level, I have to say that for her, certainly, yes. Well, well done, Mrs. Bullard. Well done, Mrs. B. And please keep us amused and everybody thinking and offend as many people as possible so that we can at least have some decent discourse in our country. Thank you very much indeed for the permission to do that. I will do it straight away, ma'am. Thank you. <laughs> we'll catch up with you again. Thank you very much, David Bullard. <laughs> Thanks very much indeed. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.